1: Welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Today I'm hosting Hank Wesselman, and he's the author of The Bowl of Light, Ancestor Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman. Hank Wesselman is a paleoanthropologist and shamanic teacher, and he lives in Hawaii, and in addition to his scientific publications, he has seven books on shamanism, including The Spirit Walker Trilogy, Awakening the Spirit World with Sandra Ingerman, and The Bowl of Light. Hank, welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Well, thank you very much. Nice to have you here. Hank, in your book, The Bowl of Light, you talked about becoming gods. What do you mean about becoming gods? What does that mean? Well, this
2: Hawaiian elder, Hale Makua, and I had this extraordinary friendship over an eight-year period. And during this time, as our friendship deepened into something really extraordinary, he began to share information from the deep wisdom of the Kohona mystics, which had never been really talked about before. And there was one particular day when just he and I were together, when I asked him some very specific questions on the fact that he often made the observation that we come into this world as gods. It's just that we've forgotten who we are because we went through the veil. So I got him to talk about this, and he talked about the fact that among all the creatures on this planet, humans are creators. You know, we alone can create the studio I'm sitting in now, or the room that you're sitting in there, where you're listening, wherever you are. You know, the dolphins and the whales, the other really highly evolved beings on this planet, could not do that. We're creators, and he felt that we embodied specifically to develop our egoic self. Now, this is an interesting perspective because you hear many transformational speakers say that we have to drop the ego or get rid of the ego. This is exactly the opposite of what Makua perceived. He saw that we actually come into this world to develop an ego, to develop the qualities of thinking, discernment, decision-making, volition, intentionality, all of which are expressions of the ego, including our creative imagination, So those abilities to create are godlike abilities, and he perceived that when we make transition at the end of life, and the soul complex, which has been associated with our physical embodiment during life, detaches, it goes back into the dream from which it came, and eventually re-emerges with the higher self, of which each one of us is a manifested aspect. And in this way, it's the higher self that grows, increases, and becomes more in response to who and what we become during life. It's in this way that the higher self becomes a creator being because those qualities and abilities are developed here on the plane of action, not there in the spirit world. And as we continue to do this on our long walkabout across eternity, we eventually step up in the spiritual hierarchy to become god-like beings. And this is what our destiny is, as embodied humans, to eventually become gods. There was
1: a wonderful uh, quote you had in the beginning, where you had Holly Makua's quote, that you also had a Henry Miller quote from the Colossus of Marusi. If men cease to believe that they will one day become gods, then they will surely become worms. I love Henry Miller. Yes, He I was a too. friend of my mother's back in the 50s in Big Sur. A very extraordinary man. The oranges of Hermanus Bosch. Yeah,
2: I love his writings. He's one of the really great American writers.
1: I agree with you. I totally agree with you. He was an amazing, amazing writer. Yeah. There was a chapter, uh, chapter 11, actually, in the book called Speaking Woman. Let's talk about that. Well, Makua
2: took it upon himself to show me various things during the time we were together during his life. And there was a day when he took me to a crater up on the side of the sacred mountain called Mauna Kea. Mauna Kea is the most sacred mountain in Polynesia. The entire mountain is a hail, a temple. The crater he took me to is a place called Speaking Woman, because there's a spirit associated with this place that he wanted to bring me into alignment with. And so Uh, On a very bright, hot, sunny day, we ascended to about the 9,000-foot level, and he took me to the edge of this crater, which was a perfectly circular, steep-sided, bowl-like cinder crater. And he first had me circumnavigate the rim of this crater three times. And it was strange, because as I walked the crater, there was no trail, so I had to keep my eyes on the ground. I would wander in and out of these zones, one of which was a prayer zone, where I found myself praying hard in a way in which I've never prayed before, another of which was a song zone, and I would find myself singing spontaneously all sorts of off-key ballads and, and songs. You know, I virtually never sing in public because I don't sing very well. But when I had circumnavigated the crater, Makua looked at me and he said, Do you see that rock over there? And I looked around, and there on the ground was one of these lava bombs. A lava bomb is a blob of lava that's blown out of a volcano, and it assumes a certain shape by solidifying in the air. This one looked very much like an American football. And because of a curious layering of the stone, there were two eyes, and those eyes were looking right at me. And he said, While you were walking around the rim of the the crater, that stone looked at me and said, Hey, who's that guy? And so I looked at the stone and said, And who are you? And Makua then had this very interesting conversation with this stone. And he told the stone who I was. And the stone said, oh, and said, I didn't have to walk around the the rim again. So Makua instructed me of how to go down into the crater. And in the bottom of the crater was a small heo, which he'd created at some point in the past. In the middle of this heo was a red stone. And the red stone represented Hina, the goddess of the moon. So I was instructed to descend into the crater. And when I got to the bottom, I had to, first of all, express my aloha. Then I had to confess all my wrongs. In other words, I had to talk about all of the things that I had done in life, which were bad. And I had to forgive myself. And I had to forgive also those people who done bad things to me. And then I had to express my intentions, what my intentions were for the future. And having done that, I then had to listen From his perspective, the first lesson is to learn how to listen, and most people don't do that very well. The second lesson is to master your emotions. Not very easy. So, I walked down into this crater, uh, watching... There
1: there wasn't a trail to
2: walk. No, no trail at all. You know, I watched my go-to-town shoes get carved up by these rocks very, very quickly. Really thank the gods I didn't wear sandals. And when I got down there, I entered the Heiau in exactly the way he'd prescribed, and, you know, I offered my love to the spirit of this place. You know, I did the forgiveness ritual. I forgave those who had offended me or hurt me, and then I forgave myself for any inadvertent or overt uh, things that I had done to other people. And then I expressed my intentions, and my intentions on that occasion were to continue to carry the teachings of Halima Makua out into the world, which I had been doing uh, for more than 10, year, for 10 years, maybe eight years at this point. And then I just opened myself to listen, and I accessed the state in which I do my shamanic work as a shamanic practitioner and teacher. And I waited And I waited and I waited and I waited. And then suddenly the voice came into my mind. And as the voice came, there was this curious mist, this organic white light that seemed to descend and surround me. And I realized that I was in the presence of this spirit called Speaking Woman. And during that experience, there were many, many things that moved through my mind. Many things were shown to me and told to me. They're not the sort of things I I usually share with other people because when you have that kind of experience, it's usually a very private one. But at the end of the session, when the mist slowly dispersed and I was kind of released from the spell which had been cast, um, I looked at the stones that were there and I took off the flower lay that Makua had given me the night before and I put it around the stone which represented the goddess of the moon. And then I poured the water from my water bottle on the stone, watering the stone with my love. It was really quite an experience. and then when i when I climbed the crater walls once again and rejoined Makua, he looked me over with obvious satisfaction. And he sort of tapped me on the chest and he said, "You know these are the mysteries." These are the mysteries, and we must remember that no one thing is sacred. That's because everything is sacred. And as he did, he turned and he looked at that red stone in the bottom of the crater. And it was, you know, a truth which he conveyed. The fact is that everything is sacred, not just one thing. And he was also conveying his profound awareness of and respect for nature, because from his perspective. The true God is nature on this planet, nature infused with life force, which is free. It's the goddess who gives us everything she's got and never asks for anything in return. And what could be better than that? So where
1: was Jill during this? Was she there? Jill was at the hotel. She was at the hotel? Yeah.
2: She followed us up the mountain about three or four hours later. So we crossed trails and she drove me back to the west side and Mako went on to his home on the east side. uh uh-huh. But that was also the place we had that extraordinary conversation about the source, the great central sun, the source from which everything came. The word that he uses to describe the source is the word Te'avi. Te'avi, that's actually a Tahitian word, a name. And in his perspective, Te'avi was the great seed of light that floated in the abysmal darkness, until it lit up with that blinding flash and began to expand out into the void. And as it did so, it breathed a single sound. See, in the beginning was not the word. In the beginning was the sound, the sound that creates all. And as it breathed the sound out into the void, the unity became dual. And the duality was what the Hawaiians call kane wahine, Kāne means man, wahine means woman. It's the word that they use, or the word that the common people use, for the creative principle, which is both masculine and feminine. The great secret is they're actually one. But they're dual in their expression. And between them, the creative principle expressed everything into existence, created everything with the three laws of creation— and we talked about that on the side of this mountain, with the sun blaring down upon us. The first law, from his perspective, is the law of free will. In order for Tiavi to divide itself and send out its seeds of light into the void, those seeds then become creators in search of reunion with the source from which they came. And they yearn to return to that source. And as they do, they create the universes as they are today. So the law of free will, the law of aloha, which is also what some people call the logos, and finally the law of light. Light is the material out of which everything is created by kane wahine, by the masculine feminine force of creation. So that source itself is not the creator. It emanates. It's the originator, but it doesn't create. It expresses itself, it emanates, and it does so constantly. And as it does, it feeds the creative principle, which in turn is in touch with the infinite wisdom of the source and creates the universes as we know them.
1: I want you to talk about your relationship and your partnership with your wife, Jill Kuykendall. Uh, She's an important part of your work.
2: It's a very extraordinary relationship. She and I met back in the 70s in Berkeley, and I was actually married before, and she was involved with an Englishman who used to house at my house when I was in Africa on expedition with the research people. And she walked into my life, and uh, here's this young girl, 22 years old, who looks like, um, uh, well, she looks indigenous. She has long black hair, and she's tall and lean, very, very beautiful woman. And we became very close friends. And then eventually when my first marriage dissolved and her relationship with her Englishman came to an end, it happened, you know, where we came together. And we've been together ever since. Jill is a physical therapist, and she has an interesting healing modality now, which she actually began to learn about while she was working in acute care rehab uh, in Sacramento. She would have these experiences where she would be the one who had to get patient X out of bed after, for example, open-heart surgery. And in moving her patient from a horizontal position, which is actually a position of death, to a vertical position, which is a position of life, you know, very often she had to deal with these people's pain, their fears, uh, their concerns as well as, you know, watching the monitors to see how they were doing to sort of get them out of bed and walking the day after a serious surgery. And there was a day when she was working in the acute care ward, and she saw this curious flickering in the light, which uh, it's kind of like when you look at the road and it's hot and you see that shimmering above the asphalt. It was very much like that, but it was inside the hospital room. And she saw it out of her peripheral vision, and then she looked at the monitors and nothing seemed to be different. And then this flickering appeared right next to the person she was trying to help stand up on the floor. And he was just totally freaked out. You know, he was frightened. He was scared. He was in pain. And he said, I can't do this. I can't do this. And then this flickering merged with this man. Now, Jill has a certain degree of clairvoyance. And she saw this happen. And he took this deep breath. And he looked at my wife and said, what did you do? And she looked at him and said, well, What did I do? And he says, well, I don't know what you did, but you did something, because I feel like I've gotten part of myself back, which has been missing for years. And then he looked at the floor and said, I think I can do this now. And Jill helped him to stand up. Well, she began to have more and more of these experiences in the hospital. And one day when she was on the phone with one of her colleagues saying, you know, I don't know how to chart this, I listened to what she was saying. And when she was done, I said, I think I know what you're doing. And she said, what? And I said, well, you know, I have this friend, Sandra Ingerman, who teaches these workshops in soul retrieval. And this is a very ancient healing modality, which is about soul renewal. Often in life, in response to trauma, portions of a person's soul essence, their life essence, their personal supernatural, will be traumatized by something that happens to them. And the phenomenon which is known as dissociation will occur, whereas part of a person's soul essence will leave, often taking the memory of the trauma with it for a period of time. It's actually a life coping mechanism, and it's not meant to be permanent. In a tribal society, everybody would know when somebody is traumatized and a ritual would be done to reconstitute the fabric of that person's soul within two or three days. But in our culture, you know, if you went to your primary care physician and said, you know, I've had a terrible soul loss experience, what do you think he or she would say? You know, they would look at you strangely and probably go on with what they were doing and, you know, that would be that. But soul loss is a phenomenon which is rampant in our society today. And what Jill does is she specializes in a transpersonally healing modality called soul retrieval. And she's been doing it now for 17 or 18 years and has performed somewhere between four and 5,000 soul retrievals. Uh, these healings that she does are experienced as life-changing. And so we work very much as a team, uh, as shamanic teachers as well in the workshops that we do. For those who are interested, you could go to our website, sharedwisdom.com, and uh, go to events and see what we're involved in.
1: Hank, I want to thank you for being a guest on the Dimensions Cafe. Hey, it's been a total delight. I've been speaking with Hank Wesselman. He's the author of The Bold of Light, Ancestral Wisdom from a Hawaiian Shaman, published by Sounds True Books in paperback. And if you'd like more information, as Hank suggested, go to the website, sharedwisdom, S-H-A-R-E-D, wisdom, S-H-A-R-E-D sharedwisdom.com. You can also get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Michael Toms. I want to thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe. Please come back again. And don't forget, when you go out there in the world, do something good.
0: You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org.